Ron uh, serves with Barnabas Ministries. He's been a missionary of ours for years. Um, we've been trying to do a better job of connecting our church with our missionaries, and we haven't had Ron out in forever. Uh, Ron loves God's Word. Uh, the first time I ever heard about Ron Frost, I was in my dorm room at Multnomah, 17 years old. My roommate handed me an article and he said, you have to read this. And, and it was an article about, about Bible read-through. Ron, um, if, you, if you know of Ron, you've heard of his Bible read-throughs. Um, uh, it was the first time that, that I'd, really, uh, I'd really heard or read someone talking about why we need all of God's word and why we need, we need to just soak in it. And it, it was so good. And, and I, started, I started attempting Bible read-throughs at first. It actually took me years and years to, to get one all the way through. Um, but but I, I remember hearing about Ron, and then I would meet people that did these read-throughs with Ron, which I think just take a few months, if I'm right. Four. Yeah. Four months, yeah. It, he, he blazes through them. Um, and I've had several dear friends uh, do that with Ron. And then I come to Harvest 11 years ago, and, and hear the man that, that was regularly teaching for us um, while we were in search of a lead pastor um, was Ron Frost. So, so blessed by Ron. Ron serves with Barnabas Ministries. Like I said, he goes all over the world um, encouraging and, and helping out um, churches, um, students, uh, all kinds of ministries. Pastor Gary and I were talking about him, and, and it, it's like Ron is kind of a, a spiritual MacGyver. He, he is a jack of all trades. He does anything and everything, really, that, that will be an encouragement and a blessing to people. So let's welcome Ron Frost up here. It's really my privilege to be back here at Harvest. I so enjoyed my days when I served as an interim way back when, and it's uh, just a joy to be here. I was also tickled at the reading of Psalm 2. This last week, I was down at Cannon Beach teaching their advanced students, their second-year students, Jesus in the Old Testament. I get to do that annual. I think this is my 11th year. And I just thump Psalm 2, just going, look at Jesus is right here in the middle of the Old Testament. And in a way, that's what we want to do is talk about Jesus today um, because he's present throughout the word. And it's a key piece of what it is to live uh, with Christ, under Christ, because he's the one who reveals the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he tells, to Phil, tells Philip. Um, we find that no one has ever seen God at any time. The God who is in his right side, his bosom, uh, this is in John chapter 118, he has made him known. So we're not talking about separate gods. We're not talking about tritheism. We're talking about one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. And uh, I get to talk about that. The, the question, the ir irony of, you know, I looked at the passage and said, well, you know, I am a lifelong bachelor, and I can speak without any confusing experience about marriages. <laughs> My theory is pure theory. <laughs> Untroubled by any, anyway, uh, let me just pray and ask for God's blessing on our time together here. Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that you have revealed yourself to us through your son, by your spirit, and uh, your scriptures are here to lead us, to guide us, to coach us into successful life and to eternal life, and we're so thankful for that. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk about Jesus Christ and our relationships, um, I think it's good for us to recognize, and I was just, uh, Liberta's sharing was really encouraging to me. 
the, the nature of life is that we're actually uh, people who live in fabric. A lot of times we view life more like playing checkers, your move, my move, your move, my move. But that really mis, misunder, is to misread reality. We can talk about things in those terms. For instance, you can say, I can say, I'm Ron Frost, I'm so many years old, I weigh so much, I won't tell you, I, I stand so tall, I have such and such color eyes, that sort of thing, the sort of thing that government would be concerned about for identity issues. But that's not really who I am. Who I really am is a friend of harvest. I'm a one who's been supported by you guys, and I'm so thankful for your support over these years. As I get to go, and really the secret of what I do is I visit my former students. I taught at Multnomah for 20 years, and so we sent our students far and wide. And mostly what I do is I go out and encourage support, and I'm used by them in various ways to do teaching, sharing, um, ministry, caring ministry for them. So it's a joy to have you as part of the fabric of my life. So that's part of who I am. I'm the son of Ernie and Hazel. I'm the brother of Bill and Dave and Sue. I'm the, the uncle, and I could just go on down the list. You see, we're an intersection of relationships. And that says more about us than our physical attributes or how much money we make, the bottom line, or you know, all these other things that we tend to think of as making an identity. The identity we need to have is our relational identity. And that's what we're talking about this morning in this wonderful passage in Colossians that's also mentioned in similar fashion to Ephesians. Now, I'm going to give you my, my theory on what I think, and I'm not alone in this, I'm following others, that what happened is Paul was writing in prison and he writes a letter that we now know as the letter to the Ephesians. But probably he's writing it in conjunction with his letter that we now call the letter to the Colossians. And in Colossians it says, make sure um, you read the letter that's going to be coming to you uh, from another town. Well, that happens to be probably where Tychicus, who is mentioned in both letters as the carrier, left the letter that we now call the letter to the Ephesians to be copied and read and studied, and that that would actually be a letter rotating among the various small churches of Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. And with that, there was a mission to come to Colossae because there were a couple of issues to be dealt with, false teachings in Colossae, and secondly, you can tell I'm an old professor, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, and also in Colossae, there was a fellow named um, Philemon who had a runaway missionary, uh, runaway uh, slave. And we're going to talk about slave relations. That was a big part of the fabric of that era. And Paul is writing, and he sends this letter along with his packet of letters to Philemon. He says, look it, I have your slave Onesimus. He came, he ran from you. He broke the law. He deserves to be in jail. You can really ratchet it up. And I just want to tell you, he became a Christian under my care. So he's now a child of Christ. And I'm sending him back to you now. And if you would let him go, that would really be great. So that's, it's an interesting thing. We don't think too much about slavery. I know what it's like to be a slave, okay? I just want to let you know I could really relate to this passage. Well, sort of in that I was one of the last of the draftees in the U.S. Army. 
and I served for two years. And basic training is as close to having a master and being a slave as you can imagine. Uh, they were there to reshape your life, to serve the government, your dear Uncle Sam. And so that was, in a way, it helped me recognize that when we talk, as one of the things we'll talk about slavery here, that that was real life. Over half of the people in the marketplace, if you went down to downtown Ephesus or Rome, about half of them would be slaves. A lot of them would buy their freedom, work for years, buy their freedom, and become ex-slaves. But that was commonplace because that was how a lot of work was done. In those days, work would be done out of the household. And the slaves would live in the household, be almost like family members, but not family members. They'd get no inheritance. When their work was done, they were done. Um, move on. Um, or, you know, die as a slave. So I want to comment on that as a little bit of context here when we talk about slaves. What we're really talking about today will be household relationships because these are slaves that would be in a household but would be doing all of the work that keeps the household alive and active, which would include uh, making your own fabric, making sure your food was uh, harvested, planted, harvested, ground, turned into wheat, baked, all these other things. So it would be a regular economy with slaves as a part of that. Husbands, wives, children, slaves or servants. Okay. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and start with a passage that sets all of our relationships in a proper context. Uh, this would have been preached in the past, and we pick it up here in 3.1. 3, uh, how far did we go? I think uh, through 3. Uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's right now, for those of us who are believers. Where are we actually seated? We're with Christ. We're in the heavenlies spiritually. But that doesn't mean it's fantasy. It means it's a reality of who we are at our deepest soul, when Nicodemus was told, Nick, you need to be born again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You have to be born from above. You have to be born again. And it's the spirit of God that was driven out of Adam's life by being grieved and quenched when Adam sinned. The spirit doesn't come with a birthing of a child. A human spirit will be there, but not the Holy Spirit. He's now always on the outside asking to re represent God the Father, Son, and he, the Holy Spirit, will come and commune with us. And as it says in Romans 5.5, 5, then pour the love of God out into our hearts and draw us into eternity. See, it's a love relationship. So when we talk about the fabric of relationships, that's why I was delighted to take this passage, even if I don't come with marital experience. I come with plenty of marriage exposure because I'm a fabric member of a family. I'm a fabric member of church. Uh, I get to celebrate with Liberta about how you folks have been faithful as friends and companions, bonding to each other, caring for each other. That's life. And Jesus is at the heart of this when we are raised with Christ. 
And the point that Paul wants us to get to is all of life changes once we're united with Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. I've even gone so far back in the days when I oftentimes spoke at youth retreats. I'd say, here's the one thing you need to learn about praying. You need to pray by leaning to your left. And we'd look, what? Don't we bow our heads or do something like that? No, lean to your left. Why should we lean to the left? Because we're seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. Lord, but you get the picture. What I'm trying to do is tease the issue a little bit here to say, so what are we really talking about here as we look at the various passage elements that we have in the passage for today, starting in verse 18? Well, first of all, we're going to start with the immediate family. But it has to start in the context of an immediate family which is located in Christ. And that that shapes how we live. In a way, really what we have in the world today is something really capsized. In fact, I, I just was reading in Romans this morning in my Bible read-throughs. I love the Bible. Oh, I love you. Thanks for mentioning it. You guys have got to abide in the Word and taste and see how good the Lord is. And when I do the Bible reading, I just read for half an hour every morning. It gets me through the Bible three times a year. Every four months I just finish because it's every half an hour in the morning. At the end of four months, I'm done. And I, I'm always looking for partners to read through with. And uh, it's a great celebration to just say, oh, taste and see how good the Lord is. So it's not a duty. I don't work with a calendar. I don't work with checking off. It's just, Lord, I want to be with you in the morning. And what we want to do is we look at this context here as family relations. Recognize if that communion and community starts to operate, how does it make a difference? And in a world that's now upside down, thinks what is good is not good, what, is, what they think is right is not right, how do we convert things and turn things upside down? The answer is look to Christ. Live to Christ. Trust him. Enjoy him. So, with fear and trepidation, I take the first verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's good. Okay, let's move on. No, probably we should say some more. I want to say more about this because even as a single person, I can tell you that the health of a marriage is what sets the kids up for success in that family. And it's interesting, too, that Paul is going to start with the wives in a way that It caused me to want to have the Ephesians passage read because it's a parallel passage. Paul probably wrote those, penned those in the same weekend as he's there in his prison cell. And he elaborates more fully what his thinking is in the Ephesians parallel where he says, "Their wives submit to your husbands. But what he goes on to say is that marriage is really something that was founded in Genesis 2.24. And so in the Ephesians passage, he cites that a man shall leave his father and his mother and come and with his wife, the two become one, one flesh. And Paul says, now this is a mystery in Ephesians 5. I take that to be speaking of Christ in the church. And you go, oh my goodness. That's a pretty big reach, isn't it? Come on, Paul, where'd you get that from? The answer is that we were created in God's image. Chapter 1, male and female he created 
Adam first, and then out of Adam comes Eve, and then back to Eve and Adam coming together comes procreation. This was God's design. This was his purpose. And with that reality, with that really remarkable reality, Paul says, that's actually speaking of Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church in Ephesians. What we find is the whole issue of marriage is the unity or the union and communion of the marriage that makes it work. And starting with the wife fits in light of Paul's thinking because guess who becomes the bride? Take out the issues of sexuality. Who becomes the bride of Christ? And what is the last part of the book of Revelation? The wedding supper of the Lamb. There's no marriage in heaven, Jesus surprised the Sadducees. He says, there's no marriage in heaven. What are you doing, this silly story of this woman who had seven husbands and which one will be her husband in heaven? Don't you know there's no marriage in heaven? Well, there is one marriage in heaven, Christ and the church. And at that point, we are the bride of Christ. So I think that's just very appropriate to get this one right because marriages in this life are ultimately a workshop for what is to come. And we're getting set up for eternity when we get to have the God to whom we submit, respond to. And the whole purpose of this beautiful response calling, this relationship of, of devotion, is that it comes because one is the leader and the other one responds to the leadership. And if the leadership is done in love, let's go to a passage that illustrates how Jesus himself represents the same kind of relationship of submission. Uh, so that Jesus is calling us to what he himself represents. Picking this up in John, I'll just briefly read it from John chapter 5. Jesus in John 5 has had this uh, 38-year-old guy. He says, hey, would you like to walk? And the guy gets up and he walks, carries his mat. And for that, Jesus is being, in effect, having an, an informal trial. It's a trial in which they will stone him to death if he doesn't respond quickly and properly. Uh, that's what they would do, blasphemy, stone him, and that sort of thing. And we have some of that in the book of Acts. Paul, for instance, is stoned almost to death, but he escapes. So here is Jesus in, in his trial after he has um, had this man. We pick it up in verse John 5, um, 16, and this is why the Jews were per persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I am working. Well, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by telling the man to carry his mat, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself out to be equal with God. Well, guess what? Jesus immediately says, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Or does he say that? Here's what he says. Oh, so he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing, and greater works than these he will show him. Jesus just basically says, yeah, well, the father and I are different in terms of function and role, but yes, we are equal. He goes on and says that again in John 10. I'm equal to the Father. He says the same thing. Show us the Father, Philip says. Well, Philip, do you not get it? I and the Father are one. He's in me and I'm in him. 
This is the reality that Jesus is offering, but the Father leads and the Son responds. There's, that's what makes relationships work. We don't do the same things and imitate each other, don't do the perfect mirror reflection, but in fact, the way a good relationship works is someone gets to initiate. There's only one steering wheel in a car, and what we're being told here is, um, guys, go, go, go ahead and do the driving, but ladies, don't, don't be feisty. Don't push back. Why? Because if there's a love relationship, and that's where we started back in um, uh, uh, chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on, verse, um, um, where do we have it here? Down in uh, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So what's the title that we have under Paul's leadership before the Father, before the Son, by the Spirit? We're the beloved ones. We're the ones who are loved. And that's the context for relationships in the new regime, the right-side-up world that we're invited to live in, that we're meant to love and to be loved. And he says, verse 14, and above all these things, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. So how will a family work well together when love is active and it creates perfect harmony? And so we, the bride of Christ, get a lesson here. Respond to the leadership that we're given. And this is a pathway into eternity. This is what God wants us to experience for the rest of eternity, the God who cares for us, the bride of Christ. He, the bridegroom. So, he then goes on and talks to the husbands. This is, I'm going, we're going to have six cases of relationship here. So, the first are going to be the immediate family. So, the second one is, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Well, the call to love is not exactly a duty. I have chosen to love you. You see, as the old bachelor, I've been waiting to get coached up, you know, so should the day ever come. <clears throat> love is an act of the will, and if you choose to love, you do. Yeah, that's, not, that's nonsense. Love is a response to the other one who captures us. And that's where a good marriage starts. Oh, my goodness, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I love you. Husbands never lose track of that. Never lose track of that. And if you need to go on a retreat, I was just down at Cannon Beach for the last week. It's a great place. Go get one of the hotel rooms and start to enjoy what you had at the very start of your marriage. Come back to that. And recognize that there's a beauty, there's a, a quality in your wife that invites you to respond. And we love God because he first loved us. And what we find is love is an attraction of mutual devotion that starts to form, and we were made as lovers. Sin breaks that. And that's why he says, don't go back to your old harsh ways because that's where you were before you were alive in Christ. What's the fruit of the Spirit, having God's life in us? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness. Those are the qualities that make for a good marriage. And husbands, don't you lose sight of that. Stay attached so that you're relationship with your wife is healthy and strong and never be harsh don't do the stuff of I'm bigger than you are whatever you might think sheer nonsense that we see in our culture around us so we go on to the third relationship 
children and husbands. Notice that these are reflexive, mutual reversals, husbands, wives, or wives and husbands, husbands, wives. Now it's going to be children and fathers, children and parents. He goes on and he says, well, uh, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now I think, before I became a Christian, I was raised in the evangelical church, and I concluded that every Sunday school lesson ended with, and obey mommy and daddy. There is the punchline. Well, it's true, that does please the Lord, and that will guarantee a successful life, because guess what? Parents know more than we do as children, when we were children, and even when we're growing into our adulthood. To take advantage of a wise parent, oh my goodness, that's the pathway to success. And so it's that invitation to say, this is what God has in mind for us, to have a generational growth process, so that in Deuteronomy 6, for instance, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what does it say? And teach your children. Go on and pass that along. That's the goal of a father. And children respond to that leadership. Once again, we see the issue of networking, bonding together as fabric. And so he speaks of that. Then he talks about um, fathers. He goes on and says, uh, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does it mean for a father to provoke a child? I don't know. It can be, there can be friction in any relationship. And I've noticed that 12 to 14 or 15-year-old children are not always going to be immediately responsive to the wisdom that the parent has to offer. Now, who was it, Mark Twain, who talked about how much his dad learned between the time he was 15 and 21? <laughs> so there's that reality that you know, the children will sometimes be moving along, and I, I, when I taught at Multnomah, I taught youth ministry, and one of the things we did is the progression of the, of the, the human growth, mind, development. A guy named Piaget talks about develop, developmental issues, and that's insightful, it's, it's helpful. But here's what's going on in most families. The parents are finally figuring out how to relate to their children at that growth stage that they're at, just about the chil- time the children move on to the next growth stage. So they're always working from behind. Oh, I finally figured out what to do when the child has now moved on to a newer, better level, higher level of maturity and needs to have coaching on the basis of that new reality, not on the old reality. And what happens is dads can be managerial. I'm going to manage you to success. And the kid goes, no, dad, I don't need your management. And that gets to be a friction-producing relationship, doesn't it? And so dads, don't try and manage your kids. Love your kids. Provide leadership, invitation. I can remember, for instance, uh, you mentioned the days back in Multnomah. I, I got one of those terrible invitations as a faculty member. Ron, would you come and speak to the men's fellowship for a talk about relationships? Well, that's... <laughs> Okay, you don't do this, you don't do that, and you don't do the other. It just never worked, okay? So I went in there and I said, I've got to come in with a new pathway here. So I said to the guys, all single guys, most of them dating, I says, hey guys, i got a question for you. 
Think about seven, eight, nine, ten years from now. Any of you want to have a successful, happy, joyful marriage? Any of you want that? I come Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I said, so what are you doing now to get there? I said, some of you are doing things that will not get you there. You're on pathways that when your wife gets upset with you after seven years of marriage and says, what kind of husband do I have, and thinks back to where you were starting that relationship, she'll go, ooh, not such good stuff. I said, so guys, right now, you better start living out what will make your marriage successful in 10 years. Start with a good foundation. I caught the guy's attention. In fact, I had one of the dorm reps from the women's, what did you say to the men? All the women are mad at you. I said, for what? Well, I don't know. Whatever you said, it just wrecked every relationship on campus. I went, "Uh uh-oh. And I told her what I'd shared with the guys. And she says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. But just to let you know, as we do our caring for each other, as we do relationships with each other, what's the destination that we have in mind? Are we here for just this 60, 70? I'm 71 now. I'm getting to be an old guy. And, and to recognize that this life is a mist that appears for a little while, where's real life? Real life is what lies ahead. And how are we living right now to be ready for that life that lies ahead? That's the challenge that we have. Dads, encourage your kids to be successful by casting a vision for them, not managing them and trying to control them. So turning into a little bit of a managerial coach here, but just that's an invitation. So there we have it. Wives, husbands, parents, children, fathers, children. Then we switch gears now into the, we could call them the extended family relationships, the slave relationships in the old times. But I wanted to use my military exposure to say, in effect, this is real life. We don't want to make the language of being a bond servant melodramatic because they lived in the home and they were oftentimes very deeply cared for and that would, you know, it wasn't a harsh relationship necessarily. But occasionally someone would be harsh. Uh, Sometimes a slave would run away. That's why I mentioned Philemon and Onesimus. This is something Paul was dealing with right in the moment. And to have a household servant who ate, who served the meal, and then would eat after the meal was served, would be in the house, would sleep in the house, have his own, their own rooms where they would sleep and be cared for. It's kind of the middle ground. What we find is that earlier in Colossians, in the last couple of weeks, I presume, you would have talked about this, the different relationships for those who are exterior to the family. Those are the farther out relationships, which would be uh, the one another's, the people that we would connect with. Now he's moving into the closer sphere, but now moving past the family, the immediate family, to those that, where you don't have that kind of love-marital bond, uh, parental childhood commitment, uh, now to relationships, and guess what? There's going to be more said about the slave relationships the work relationships. In fact, let's just adapt that to being employer-employee because that would be more useful to us. What do we do to have healthy employer-employee relationships? Well, we find out 
he has a lot to say. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Notice how many more words are attached to that role as a servant than to husbands, wives, children. Lots more because there's probably more tension in this because the relationship is not so natural as much as it's a little unnatural and that you have this leadership following function uh, put in the context of a structure that required obedience and response. And it could lead to a person who is a slave becoming a Christian, but never quite bringing the vertical into that Christian relationship that they have with Christian masters and family with whom they're working. So Paul is conscious of that. Lots of people in the church would have had slaves, and he wants to talk about Christian slaves in Christian families. And we kind of go, what? Wouldn't they just, if they're Christians, let them go? Well, no, the economy of that era was dependent on fixed relationships, and the trick was to care for your slaves because that was their social security, that was their economy, that was their food, that was their shelter. That was how they made it in life. And if you didn't have your slaves, you wouldn't have your own food, you wouldn't have your own economy in the family. It's all woven together, so it's different. So that's why the employer-employee kind of thing fits today, because guess what? Most of us dare not quit our jobs, because if we do, oh my goodness, what do we do next? That's where our economy is supported. That's how our economy is supported. So I use the Army as my illustration. I mentioned that. And let me just tell a story to, by way of story, try and address this issue of how do we do this work of living for Christ? Remember, that's where we started. Set our mind on Christ, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. And let's just live with that as our new point of orientation, even as we have relationships at this level. So the army story. How many of my drill sergeants or the commanding officer or fellow soldiers were Christians there at Fort Gordon, Georgia? Yeah, maybe two or three out of 120 in the broader training, four or five maybe. Professing Christians, but guys that were really living in a love relationship with Christ, not many. And certainly not any of my immediate leaders. Well, guess what? I got stuck in being a platoon guide. What is a platoon guide? That means I'm an artificial sergeant in my training. And everyone knows I'm a private just like they are. But for the sake of having structure among the soldiers, I was selected to be the top dog in the structure of our particular platoon, 40 men. And we had something called the IG inspection coming up. What's the, this, the inspector general would come and inspect a unit once a year and make sure the commander was commanding properly, the leaders were leading well, and the product was coming out fruitfully and productively. And in those days, by the way, there was a war in Vietnam. And most of the military policemen, what I was being trained to do, were being sent to Vietnam. 
to replace combat troops. So the politicians could say, we're just sending over support troops and pulling back all of our combat troops from Vietnam. This is a Vietnamization, as they called it. Well, what was really happening is the military policemen were replacing infantry in, S in perimeter patrols, convoy escort, which is where you would get killed more readily than any other place in Vietnam. So MPs were getting slaughtered, and we MPs knew it, but it never made the news. We're going, oh, well, this is exciting. So anyway, all that is background. So here's what happened, the IG inspection. I said, okay, IG inspectors have been doing this for years, and they know the places where a guy, if he can cut corners, will cut corners and not do a real sound cleaning job. The whole thing is to make sure it's ship-shaped, clean, neat, all the rest. So who did I assign to do the bathroom cleanup? I just said, I don't know that anyone else is going to do this for the Lord. I get to do this for the Lord. This is my relationship with Christ. I'm going to do a good job. And that was the best-looking bathroom, latrine, toilet, showers you could ever imagine. But you catch the point here that I'm trying to make. Everything we do is relational. And when we have the vertical relationship with Christ, it changes the way our horizontal relationships work. I didn't have this in my notes. Let me add a story here. In basic training, my first F event of training was at Fort Lewis, original basic training. Every morning I'd have a guy wake me up because I couldn't have an alarm there. So I could have my 30 minutes of Bible reading. And they, I'd have to find out who is the last guy in what they called the fire watch. The guy walking around the barracks with a baseball bat for no good reason except to train guys and showing, doing security duty. So I found out this one guy, okay, say, make sure you wake me up. In my 12 weeks in basic, I always had the wake up except one time a guy forgot. And uh, it was wild. <laughs> they, I went, oh, Reveille is going off. Oh, man, I better get going here. I didn't get into the Bible, but I can do it at noontime. So I got into the day, and halfway through the day, my assistant squad leader, I was a squad leader in that arrangement, my assistant squad leader says to me, Frost, what is with you today? You are stinking selfish. I've never seen you selfish before. Ooh, I hadn't done my washing in the water of the Word that morning, and I was stinking already. I'm just, just here to tell you folks, relationships, vertical and horizontal, go together. And he didn't think about my Christianity and the fact that I was in the Word or not in the Word. He just knew that I was a different person the moment I didn't have that morning connection. And so it's that sort of thing that we want to talk about here as we look at this passage. How do we live? Well, the answer is, if you are someone who is employed, be the best employee possible because the one who really cares about your devotion is the Lord because he says, I want you to be the fragrance, and this is 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2, I want you to, you, don't you realize you are the fragrance of the Christ to God relationship with those you're, you're around? For some, it's the smell of life. For some, it's the smell of death. Because they will recognize there's something really different about you. And so that's what he's saying to the, to the workers. Make sure you do it properly. And then he goes on and he says, okay, masters and slaves. And once again, we have one of these reversals, this mutual issue. He says, now, masters, remember, live in light of this. You need to be just and fair because you've got a master in heaven. 
Recognize that the role you have above your slave, your servant, is like the relationship the Father has in watching over you. And I can think, for instance, of that uh, parable we are familiar with. Uh, if we just do our, our Bible reading in um, Matthew 18, where this uh, story of this guy who owes uh, 10,000 talents. Well, a talent is a big old barrel of gold, um, which would be probably a billion dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of gold. And he says, I can't pay it back. Please have mercy. Don't send me to jail for the rest of my life. And the master says, okay, I'll have mercy on you. And he lets the guy go. Then what does the guy do? He's got a guy who owes him 100 denarii, which is minuscule, minuscule. And he says, pay me the money. And the guy can't pay him, so he sends him to jail. Now, what does the master, when he hears about that, do? Ah, we've got a little renegotiating to do. You with the 10,000 talent debt, you're in jail until you pay it off. So the whole thing is, how do we care for each other? Always be conscious that there's a set of relationships and we are fabric people. And if we're not living with the reality of Christ and the Father by the Spirit communing and communicating with us so that it impacts our human relationships, then we've got some talking to do to the one who will, in a day to come, have a chat with us and say, welcome to heaven, now we've got some things to talk about. And just be ready for that. Recognize that as you're doing your life, your ministry, whatever status you have, live in light of eternity. Um, this is the invitation that we have in this text. It's a rich, wonderful passage. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven, and that's good news, because he's a loving master. He's one who cares for us. He's one who so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and that we could be the bride to the bridegroom. And that, I think, is the overarching theme of the entire Bible, the ultimate marriage, so that we could live in a happy harmony with the one who loves us. And the father is just going to be going, well done. This is work out so well, but we need to get ready for that future. So what have we learned? Three, three insights that I hope we can take from this. One is how do we share God's heavenly life in ways that can oh, reshape how we live? I like Martin Luther, who used this analogy of marriage in a fruitful way. He wrote this in 1520. That was a long time ago. 500 years ago, he posted his 95 theses uh, made himself famous. Well, he had a lot more to say than worrying about the indulgences. And here is his third incomparable benefit of faith that brings us into the family relationship marital issues in a way that I love. And I think he's absolutely accurate in what he writes here. He says, the third incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. By this mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. He's referencing the Ephesians 5, parallel to the passage we've been looking at. And if they are one flesh, there is between them a true marriage. Indeed, the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of the one true marriage. It follows that everything they have, they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Accordingly, 
The believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though all that Christ had were her own. Let us compare these and we shall see the inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. That's who Jesus is. Grace, life, salvation, and a whole list of things that we were singing about in our sharing worship time this morning. The soul, however, that's us, is full of, oh dear, you bunch of rascals, he's sniffed you out. Sins, death, and damnation apart from Christ. Where would we be? All of us are selfish at the core apart from Christ. We're curved in on ourselves. That's what Luther uses as the language of sin. Being curved in, just like Adam and Eve, they weren't self-conscious, but when they sinned, what happened? They were immediately self-absorbed, naked and ashamed. Okay? And so with that, he says, Now let faith come between God and his bride, and sin's death and damnation will be Christ's. Because in marriage, you receive in the great exchange all that your spouse brings to the marriage. While grace, life, and salvation will be the souls. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? And so it is that Jesus dies on the cross and swallows our death. And then he gives us his eternal life through the resurrection. So that's one applied piece here. Start to live in light of that. Let that shape the way we live horizontally. Now the question is, as we still have old roles, do we have new motives? See, the marriage and work, employment, slavery, whatever you want to use as language, is the horizontal stuff. Has it been converted in light of our relationship with Christ? The answer is, let love pervade your heart. Always pause and say, Lord, what would please you here? I want to do what is, I, I'm, I want to live by faith this morning. I want to live by faith this afternoon. Uh, so, for instance, say there's this wonderful movie that's come out, Lolita Does Paris. A little iffy, but, you know, I've heard that it's a good show. A lot of people are going to it or buying it or, you know. And so my question is whether it's that crass sort of thing or something even more bland. Here's the question we have. Do you say, Lord, do you want to do that with me? Can we spend the afternoon together? How about a Seahawks game? Lord, do you want to just sit down and watch a Seahawks game with me? In other words, we don't have anything that's separated from Christ. And I don't think he minds us watching Seahawks games, but if we don't do it in light of our love for him, then leave it alone. The reality that we want to get to is relationships change in light of our relationship with Christ. And finally, transformation only comes through a new focus. Um, the Bible reading that we mentioned, the whole reason for the Bible reading isn't to say I've read the Bible a bunch of times. It's because that's how I get focused in the morning. How do we know Christ unless we're looking at him? How do we know the Father unless we're finding what the Son tells us about him? How do we have the love of Christ poured out into our hearts unless we're listening to the Word of God? After all, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make us into men and women of God. And that's the invitation of the morning. Let's pray. Fathers, we thank you so much for your grace and love toward us. 
through Jesus Christ. Um, Thank you for the new orientation to life you've given us, and I pray that we live appropriately. Think of the communion that's coming in, in just a moment here, and what a beautiful picture that is of you giving yourself for us and our receiving from you very life uh, eternal. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.